The worst of nations tend to be arrogant, violent, and wasteful. This usually happens at the expense of others. Such was the character of Babylon the Great, but it was not permitted to persist forever. Welcome to Every Last Word, a radio and internet program with Dr. Philip Ryken, teaching the whole Bible to change your whole life. We are in an expositional study in the book of Jeremiah. In today's passage, Jeremiah prophesies more on the destruction of Babylon the Great. They were a mighty people, but they were brought low by the mightier hand of God. Well, Phil, Jeremiah 50 and 51 both talk about the destruction of Babylon. Why do you think Jeremiah spent so much time explaining their destruction? Well, Mark, these are two of the longest chapters that you'll read anywhere in the Bible. And I think there's an important reason for that, and that is that Jeremiah wanted to show how completely the city of Babylon was destroyed. And I think the way the whole description goes on and on really uh, reinforces what a total devastation it was. Why specifically, though, did Babylon deserve that kind of punishment? And what can we learn from that? Well, here you have uh, a nation that set itself up against the kingdom of God. Uh, The Babylonians were arrogant. They were violent. You know, frankly, in a lot of ways, they resemble our own culture in its pride and violence. And I think we learn from the story of Babylon's destruction partly a message of God's grace and deliverance because the people of God were under the tyranny of the Babylonians and God completely delivered them from their exile in Babylon. Here is a God who vindicates his people, who destroys evil and all the works of the devil. And maybe it's a message of warning for us in our own sin, but also a message of comfort that there is safety for the people of God, even from the most godless, wicked nations in the world. Thanks, Phil. Let's turn in our Bibles now to Jeremiah chapter 51 and listen to God's Word for us today. Suppose you might say about this prophecy here in Jeremiah chapter 51 that it is among the heaviest prophecies in the Bible. And I say that because it was so heavy that it ended up at the bottom of the Euphrates River. It happened like this. King Zedekiah sent Sariah, who seems to have been Baruch's brother, along with him to be a sort of special envoy to Babylon. And when Jeremiah heard about Sariah's mission, he gave him the latest edition of his prophecy about Babylon. We read in verse 59 at the end of the chapter, this is the message Jeremiah gave to Sariah when he went to Babylon. Jeremiah had written on a scroll about all the disasters that would come upon Babylon. He said to Sariah, when you get to Babylon, see that you read all these words aloud. And what Sariah read probably is what we now know as Jeremiah 50 and 51. And surely when Sariah was finished with his reading, he followed the rest of Jeremiah's instructions. He said, O Lord, you have said you will destroy this place so that neither man nor animal will live in it. And then he tied a stone to the scroll and threw it into the Euphrates, saying, So will Babylon sink to rise no more because of the disaster I will bring upon her. This was Jeremiah's final object lesson. You may remember that he specialized in audiovisuals. He once buried a linen belt. On another occasion, he 
bought a clay jar from the potter and took it outside the city walls and smashed it. On another occasion, he purchased a property that was lying in enemy-occupied territory, and this is his final object lesson, and the message is obvious. Babylon is sunk. And one can imagine what it must have been like when the exiles gathered around Sariah by the banks of the Babylon River, those banks where they had often sat and wept over their fate as exiles wept for the city of Zion. You can imagine how it must have been as they gathered around Sariah and heard God promise to utterly destroy their enemies. And one can imagine that they stood peering into the watery depths to make sure that that prophecy and that stone really did sink to the bottom, to make sure that it wouldn't float back up to the surface as if the Babylonians would come back to haunt them. Well, Jeremiah's scroll never resurfaced. Like the Babylonian Empire, it stayed submerged. Unfortunately, Baruch who was Jeremiah's scribe, made a copy and thereby preserved the prophecy in the pages of the Old Testament. And in it we find a story from the past, a warning for the present, and a hope for the future. First, a story from the past. Now, because Jeremiah 50 and 51 actually form one long prophecy, this chapter 51 repeats many of the themes from chapter 50. From chapter 50, once again, Babylon will be attacked by a coalition of foreign armies who take their marching orders from God himself. We see it, for example, in verse 27. Lift up a banner in the land, blow the trumpet among the nations, prepare the nations for battle against her. And again, here in chapter 51, Jeremiah gives detailed descriptions of the battle. I suppose the most dramatic comes in verses 31 and 32. He imagines what the scene will be like in the cabinet war rooms of King Nebuchadnezzar. One courier follows another and messenger follows messenger to announce to the king of Babylon that his entire city is captured. The river crossings seized, the marshes set on fire, and the soldiers terrified. One scholar explains that In the ancient world, trained runners brought news from the scene of the battle. Babylon's runners were renowned. We have in these verses the picture of one runner coming after another from every direction to announce to the king that his city had fallen. The first news seems to refer to the collapse of the defenses outside the city. In addition to the two massive walls surrounding the heart of Babylon, an inner one some 21 feet thick and an outer one some 12 feet thick, there were great walls thrown around at intervals outside the city together with a chain of fortresses both to the north and to the south of the city. The Euphrates River also gave protection and a variety of waterways flooded with water all combined to create the impression of an impregnable city. And yet, as the messengers come, they say that the fords across the rivers were seized 
And the reedy swamps were set on fire, and with this news, all of the warriors were sent into a panic. Jeremiah's prophecies also capture the element of surprise in Babylon's defeat. We see it, for example, in verse 39. While they are aroused, I will set out a feast for them and make them drunk, so that they shout with laughter, then sleep forever and not awake, declares the Lord. You know, these prophecies were fulfilled in the life and the death of King Belshazzar, who gave, as we read in Daniel chapter 5, a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, of iron, wood, and stone. Yet while they were feasting, God sent a hand to write words of judgment on the wall of the banqueting hall. But on that very night, after he had read the handwriting on the wall, Belshazzar met his death at the hands of the Medes, and they took his kingdom. As a result of that defeat, Babylon became a wasteland, which is also what Jeremiah promised. I will dry up her sea, the end of verse 36, and make her springs dry. Suppose the most remarkable prophecy of all is the prophecy we read in verse 58. Babylon's thick wall will be leveled and her high gates set on fire. According to Herodotus, the outer walls of Babylon were 300 feet high and 75 feet wide, wide enough for several chariots to ride abreast. And yet in the end, they would all fall down. Now, many of these events were prophesied already in Jeremiah 50. Another similarity between the two chapters is the order to flee from Babylon. Come out of her, my people. Run for your lives. Run from the fierce anger of the Lord. And as we read these two very long chapters, we may be tempted to think that they are somewhat repetitive, not to say redundant especially since this prophecy against Babylon is longer than all of Jeremiah's other oracles against the nations combined. Why is this? Well, there are at least two good reasons for it. One is because it shows how finally, definitely, utterly, and completely God defeated the city of Babylon. The other is that people would believe the prophecy. Calvin pointed out that unless Jeremiah said these things at some length and repeated them over and over again, no one would ever have believed him. You see, Babylon was then at the height of its powers, with its fabulous hanging gardens, one of the seven wonders of the world, and its mighty Ishtar gate. Jeremiah, says Calvin, predicts the ruin of Babylon not in simple words, For nothing seemed then more unreasonable. Babylon was then the metropolis of the East. No one could have thought that it would ever be possessed by a foreign power. And yet, whether people believed it or not, Babylon did sink like a rock to the bottom of the Euphrates. And this story from the past teaches a number of spiritual lessons. It teaches that God is just. 
As he says in verse 24, I will repay Babylon and all who live in Babylonia for all the wrong they have done in Zion. There again we find it in verse 56, the Lord is a God of retribution. He will repay in full. God is just and he must and he will repay evil for evil. The fall of Babylon teaches further that God is powerful, all-powerful. Jeremiah pauses in the middle of his prophecy to remember that this God of the nations is also the God of creation. This is verse 15. He made the earth by his power. He founded the world by his wisdom and stretched out the heavens by his understanding. When he thunders, the waters in the heavens roar. He sends lightning with the rain and brings out the wind from his storehouses. The downfall of Babylon is just one small part of God's power. He is the God over all creation, over heaven and earth and everything that is within them. He is all-powerful. Jeremiah reminds us that he is both God of creation and God of the nations. We learn also from this defeat of Babylon that God answers prayer. We read carefully, we notice that God's people prayed for the defeat of their enemies, especially Babylon. We see it on occasion in the Psalms, but we also find it here in verse 34. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has devoured us. Picture this. Like a serpent, he has swallowed us and filled his stomach with our delicacies and then has spewed us out. May the violence done to our flesh be upon Babylon, say the inhabitants of Zion. And in these verses, Nebuchadnezzar is described as a gluttonous beast who gorges himself on the people of God and then spits them back out again like some grotesque monster. And it was right for the people of God to pray that God would deliver them from this great enemy. It was right also for God to answer those prayers. This is what he says In verse 36, in answer to their prayers, this is what the Lord says, See, I will defend your cause and avenge you. God is the avenger of his people. He is a defender. He is an advocate. And it is his responsibility to defeat all the enemies of his people. And this is why we continue to pray for the kingly work of Jesus Christ Pray that he would restrain and to conquer all of his and all of our enemies. Those are some of the lessons we might draw from this story from the past, that God is just, that he is all-powerful, and that he answers prayer. And yet Jeremiah 51 is also a grave warning for the present. I say this because Babylon is not just historic Babylon. Babylon stands for everything that is hateful and odious to God. Babylon is every culture that is proud, arrogant, destructive, violent, and wasteful. Babylon is every city which sets itself up against the kingdom of God. Ray Bakke observes in a recent book about the theology of the city that throughout the Bible, Babylon is a symbol of the city which is anti-God. Literally, the name means gate to God, 
The Babylonian disease leads a city to build towers that breach heaven's gates. Move over, God. We're coming up, might be their motto. Augustine wrote about Babylon in his great book, The City of God. Augustine said that the history of the world is a conflict between two great cities, the city of man and the city of God. This is how James Boyce summarizes Augustine's tale of two cities. According to Augustine, Scripture unfolds the history of two distinct groups of people, each having a distinct origin, development, characteristics, and destiny. These are two cities or societies. The earthly society has its highest expression in the city cultures of Babylon and Rome. The other is the church, composed of God's elect. The former is destined to pass away, but the latter is blessed by God and is to last forever. Now, as Augustine studied the Bible, he discovered that Babylon represented the city of man, standing against the city of God. Then as he directed his attention to his own society, he realized that the city of Rome was the capital city of man. I believe that if Augustine were alive today, he would add at least one other city to his list, Washington, or perhaps New York. Those sins which were most prevalent in Babylon are now the sins of our own culture. Jeremiah is a warning for the present because we ourselves live in American Babylon. Now, what were the chief sins of Babylon? First, they worshipped other gods. Listen to Jeremiah's indictment in verse 17. Every man is senseless and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is shamed by his idols. His images are a fraud. They have no breath in them. They are worthless, the objects of mockery. When their judgment comes, they will perish. And here Jeremiah repeats a prophecy that he made in his sermon about the scarecrow in the melon patch. Idols, he says, are idle. They cannot do anything. They do not know anything. They don't have any sense. They cannot breathe. They have no value because they cannot save their worshipers from judgment. And he gives several hints in this chapter that the most popular idol of all in Babylon was mammon. You'll notice that these idol makers were primarily goldsmiths. Then again in verse 7, towards the beginning of the chapter, we hear Babylon described as a gold cup. Or again, verse 13, Babylon was rich in treasures, and all of this was true. They plundered gold and jewels from all of their enemies, including the temple in Jerusalem, and carried them back to their fabulous palaces. And so Robert Linthicum issues this stinging indictment. In essence, all the rest of the world had become the third world to Babylon. Babylon was enriched, but the price was the destitution of other countries and peoples of the world. The impoverishment of the world with its natural resources meant nothing to Babylon as long as she could have her little niceties and her obscene luxuries. Well, the endless quest for little niceties and obscene luxuries is an apt description of our own culture. 
The cash registers start ringing the day after Thanksgiving, and they don't stop until sometime after New Year's Day. In fact, I understand that this year the cash registers are starting to begin on Thanksgiving Day itself so that the store owners can squeeze a little bit more money out of the holidays. And as you sort through all of your mail-order catalogs and as you hum the television jingles and as you press your nose up against the shop window, recognize that you are living among Babylonians. The trouble with gold, as with every other idol, is that it is senseless and breathless and worthless. The true God is nothing like that. He is no idol. He, says Jeremiah, verse 19, He who is the portion of Jacob is not like these, for he is the maker of all things. You see, God is not a man-made object. He himself is the maker of all things and therefore reigns supreme over all other gods, including the gods of the Babylonians. And in the end, he will punish them for their idolatry. The time will surely come, verse 47, when I will punish the idols of Babylon, for her whole land will be disgraced and her slain will all lie fallen within her. Now, the other great sin of Babylon was violence. The Babylonians were a fierce and warlike people. Verses 20 through 23, God describes them as a war club, as a weapon for battle, which is used to shatter nations and kingdoms and chariots and drivers and so on. And these verses are best understood as words to Babylon. God did use Babylon to carry out his judgments. Nevertheless, They were responsible for the evil which they committed on the earth, and they were cursed for their bloodthirsty ways. Well, like Babylon, America is becoming an increasingly violent nation. Serial killers are now considered a suitable subject for movies. The most popular video games for children feature graphic scenes of horrific dismemberment. Not surprisingly, then, we are routinely titillated with the latest details of some gruesome homicide or another. Suppose America is also like Babylon because we have the most powerful army in the world. It's been a fascinating series of articles in the Philadelphia Inquirer called Black Hawk Down. It describes the fate of certain American soldiers in their peacekeeping mission in Somalia describes the way that the Somali citizens turned against the American soldiers and put their lives in danger and all of the chaos that resulted. One Somali described what it was like to see a helicopter swerve over his house and then fire its machine guns down the street. As he looked into the helicopter, he could not tell that there was any human being at the controls of the helicopter. The figure that he saw seemed to him like some mechanized creature with its helmet and goggles and armor, and it created in him an overwhelming sense of fear and despair at this death coming from the skies. Well, people felt the same way about the Babylonian army. It sent cities into great panic when they heard that the Babylonians were coming. This is why I say that the fall of Babylon is a warning for the present, because we have become in many ways like Babylon. This is the mightiest, most 
powerful, wealthiest nation in the history of the world, as was Babylon. And that power, that prosperity come with great spiritual danger. They lead very naturally to arrogance and to pride and to greed and all kinds of immorality. Like Babylon, there are some things, at least in our culture, which are hateful and odious to God, and we should be warned by the recognition of those similarities. And yet, there is this great hope for the future for the people of God, and that is that the city of Babylon will not stand forever. Eventually, Satan's lease on the city of man will expire. Jeremiah's prophecy contains a hint of something much bigger than the fall of Babylon. Notice what he says in verse 48. When judgment comes, then heaven and earth and all that is in them will shout for joy over Babylon. You see, Jeremiah is prophesying about cosmic events, universal events, events which affect everything in the created order. And so he is speaking about the eventual triumph of the city of God, the ultimate victory of Jesus Christ over all of the enemies of God, over everything that stands in opposition to God's ways. Jeremiah's prophecy is not just about Babylon past, it is also about Babylon future. It looks forward to the day of judgment. This is how F.B. Meyer puts it. Every form of anti-Christian power, whether systems of false philosophy, structures of ancient superstition, or gigantic wrongs like drug trafficking, will wither and die before the all-conquering might of Emmanuel, who was manifested to destroy the works of the evil one. He must reign until all enemies are put beneath his feet. Let us strengthen our confidence in the certain prevalence of good over evil, of the church over the world, and of Christ over Satan, as we consider the fulfillment of Jeremiah's predictions concerning the fall of Babylon. You know, what Jeremiah promised about the fall of Babylon is repeated in the book of Revelation, the last great prophecy about the final defeat of Babylon. I encourage you to turn there. It comes in chapter 17 and following, near the end of the book of Revelation. Here again, the Apostle John refers to Babylon, and here again, Babylon has a double meaning. It stands both for Rome and again for every institution which is hateful and odious to God. Similarities between Jeremiah and Revelation are numerous. In fact, one might almost say that Revelation 17 to 19 is based on Jeremiah 50 and 51. For example, chapter 17, verse 4, John sees a golden cup in Babylon's hand. He exposes her idolatry. Chapter 18, verse 3, her love for excessive luxuries. He accuses her again and again of violence against the people of God. He warns God's people, chapter 18, verse 4, to flee from Babylon on the day of judgment. Like Jeremiah, John rejoices in the fall and the desolation of Babylon. Chapter 18, verse 2, fallen, 
Fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a haunt for every evil spirit, a haunt for every unclean and detestable bird. Or again in verse 10, Woe, woe, O great city, O Babylon, city of power, in one hour your doom has come. And then most striking of all, verse 21, John's vision includes a stone cast into the watery depths. And a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, with such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. You see, John's vision was every bit as heavy as Jeremiah's prophecy. When Jeremiah prophesied that caused that stone to be thrown into the Euphrates River. He was making a prophecy about the end of history. And the city of Satan will sink to the bottom of the sea. Jeremiah was among the first to celebrate the ultimate victory of Jesus Christ over sin and over death and over Satan and over every last enemy of God. It is an awesome thing to contemplate The day of judgment, the day of defeat, the end of history. And by awesome, I mean it is a frightening thing, something which causes fear. Where will you stand on the day of judgment? What will happen to you on that day when all the enemies of God sink like a millstone to the bottom of the sea? Well, Jeremiah gives a reassurance for the people of God. It comes in Jeremiah 51, verse 10. It's a promise that God's people will live to tell about God's mighty judgments. They themselves will not perish when Babylon falls. They will escape and they will give this testimony of praise. They will say, the Lord has vindicated us. Come, Let us tell in Zion what the Lord our God has done. This promise speaks of the vindication of God's people. It means, in this word vindication, that their sin has been dealt with. It doesn't mean that their sin has been ignored or forgotten. It means that it has actually been paid for. The ultimate fulfillment of this promise is in the cross of Jesus Christ where the sins of the people of God were dealt with once and for all so that the people of God could be vindicated. And this is such good news that Jeremiah imagines that it will be announced all over Zion. You see, after Babylon has been destroyed, the city of Zion still remains. It still stands, and God's people return to that city to celebrate God's victory. The same thing will happen at the end of history. God's people will celebrate their vindication and God's victory over Babylon forever. You know, John saw the same thing in his vision. As his prophecy passes into chapter 19, he hears the sound of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. He has condemned Babylon. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Hallelujah! For our Lord God 
Almighty reigns. And remember this, that these great hallelujah passages from the end of Scripture, including this hallelujah chorus, which is part of Handel's Messiah, that these hallelujah choruses were sung in praise for the ultimate fulfillment of the prophecies of Jeremiah. In the end, as he promised, Babylon will be defeated. And to this, the people of God will only be able to say, Hallelujah and Hallelujah, Amen and Amen. Our Father in heaven, we do give you praise for your triumph, the triumph of your city over the city of Satan. And we give you praise for this sure hope that in the end our Savior Jesus Christ will reign supreme and that all of our enemies and his enemies will be defeated. We give you this praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to Every Last Word, a ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, featuring the Bible teaching of Dr. Philip Graham Ryken. We appreciate your ongoing support of this broadcast ministry. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades, even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching that will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. The Alliance also produces the radio broadcasts The Bible Study Hour, featuring the teaching of the late Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, and Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, featuring the Bible teaching of the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. For a full list of radio stations carrying our programs, please visit our website at www.alliancenet.org. Every last word continues through your generous gifts and financial support. If you would like to see this program continue to benefit others as it has benefited you, please prayerfully consider becoming a friend of the Alliance. For more information or to make a contribution, please contact us by calling toll-free 1-800-488-1888. You can also send us a gift by writing to Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA, 19103. Or you can visit us online at www.alliancenet.org. Be sure to ask for a free resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians. Thank you again for your continued support and for listening to Every Last Word.